All right. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Citizens. Uh, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at the church. Uh, especially want to welcome you if you're new or visiting for the first time. Uh, want one more big plug for our city events, city dinners, city happy hours. Um, it's always a great time, and it's really um, a, a good opportunity and a really um, inviting, safe space to, to meet other people, connect. I know that in this season, we've realized how important connection is, um, especially because we've pretty much been quarantined from each other, from physical contact uh, for a long time. I can tell you the last happy hour was the only church event that my wife made me stay at home and she went um, on her own. And so uh, it's a great time. I definitely would recommend RZPing for either the dinner uh, or the happy hour next week. Okay. Uh, well, we got a lot of things going on today. It's, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, you guys know I'm a big Philadelphia Eagles fan, but today, um, obviously, I have to root for the hometown team, so go Rams. Um, any uh, Cincinnati Bengals fans in the room? It's a safe space. Uh, you know. Well, if you're, if you're there, uh, we, we welcome you in the gospel. Um, uh, today is also, as Jane mentioned, is also the day before Valentine's Day. It's the, it's a day that both married and un, unmarried people dread. Um, but uh, that being said, I think it's very fitting that um, the name of God we're looking at today as we continue our series through the names of God is the name Elkanah. Say that with me. Elkanah, which means the Lord is jealous. Okay? It's kind of a spicy name today. Um, Elkanah, the Lord is jealous. And this is kind of an odd one out among all the different names we've been looking at throughout this series uh, because it's the only one that doesn't sound inherently good. Okay, like Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. That sounds great. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Love that. El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. Great. Okay, but then you get this one, Elkanah, jealous God, and it should kind of like throw your body into a little muscle confusion because in our context, we never hear that word jealous uh, referred to in a positive way. You know, if you're known to be a jealous person, uh, I'm sorry, that's not a compliment, okay? It's never a good thing. And, and typically when we hear that word jealous, uh, we think about people uh, who are obsessive, we think about people who are overly possessive, insecure, resentful of other people and what they have because other people have maybe something that we want. And, and, and even in the Bible, jealousy is very rarely referred to in a positive light. In the book of Galatians, Paul lists uh, jealousy alongside um, sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, fits of anger, these works of the flesh that the Apostle Paul says will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. In the book of James, we, we read that for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, uh, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Okay, put another way, James is saying that jealousy is often the very seed that produces the worst fruits in people. And, and when you read the stories in the Bible, from the very beginning of the Bible, Cain and Abel, right? You see murder, but which is really rooted in jealousy. Jealousy makes people do some crazy things. And so we have to pay very close attention when God uses a loaded word like jealousy to describe himself. Okay, so turn with me uh, to Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 to 14. Uh, if you can choose your translation, uh, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, 
the new international version, and we're also going to have it uh, on the screen behind me. So Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 to 14. This is the reading of God's word. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Amen. Okay, uh, to give you a little bit of context, uh, in the book of Exodus, God rescues his people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, okay? And then he leads the Israelites to Mount Sinai, where he basically begins to teach them what it means to live as free people, right? Because when you've been enslaved all your life, that's all you know. That's the only way you know how to live. And God begins to teach them that this relationship is going to be a different kind of relationship, you know, like... Uh, God begins to say, you know, there are all these habits and there are all these ways of thinking and ways of being that you need to unlearn when you get into a relationship with me. You're used to living in fear. You're used to being oppressed and exploited. That's not the way this relationship is going to work. That's not the kind of relationship I want to have with you. So God invites Moses up to Mount Sinai. And he gives him uh, 10 commandments. Okay, if you remember in Exodus 20, God invites him up and gives him 10 commandments as kind of like the terms of this new relationship. You can think about them kind of like the covenantal vows that a husband and wife uh, would make to each other on their wedding day. Okay, and so, you know, I, I think it's really important for us to understand the Ten Commandments like this because, you know, we often think about the Ten Commandments as just more rules and more restrictions. And, you know, I, at some point I want to do a series on the Ten Commandments because I think they're so misunderstood. But when God gives Israelites the Ten Commandments, he's giving it to them as a loving guide to protect them to teach them how to live as free people, to be set apart uh, in a way that reflects the values and character of Yahweh, okay? And so Moses is up, and he's receiving the Ten Commandments, so you have this wedding ceremony taking place at the top of the mountain, and while this ceremony is taking place at the base of the mountain, the Israelites are already violating their covenant vows, Okay, they're already breaking the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idols. Okay, so it's, it's literally like if you were at a wedding, you just saw the bride and groom exchange their vows and rings, and then during cocktail hour, you're walking around and you see the groom getting another girl's number. Okay, this is how ridiculous this scene is. Right? And so God, he looks at this and he's like, are you serious? Like, I rescued you from 400 years of slavery, and this is how you treat me? This is over. I'm ending this. I can't do this anymore. You're going to keep betraying me over and over again. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, hold up. You know, back, remember what you promised Abraham? You promised him that 
you know, you're going to make him into a great nation, that you're going to rescue the entire world through his descendants, i.e. us. How are you going to do that if you destroy us? How are you going to do that if you end this relationship? And I love the Bible because it's so real. These interactions are so real. God actually says, fine, I won't destroy them, right? And Moses is like, oh, he's like, Nice, thank God. Moses gets down from the mountain, sees the Israelites worshiping the golden calf, and Moses is like, what the? And he gets pissed, and he throws the tablets on the ground and breaks the tablets, okay? It's kind of like when you have two parents, you know, and one parent is going off on their kids, right? And the other parent is like, what is wrong with you? Calm down. Like, let me take care of this, right? And they go in the room, and by the end of the conversation, they're yelling louder than the first parent, right? That always happens. Right? Well, this is what's happening in this scene, and Moses is pissed, and so by the time we get to Exodus 34, God is basically giving him a new set of tablets. So this is the second time God is establishing a covenant with Israel. So they've barely established the covenant for the first time. They've barely established their vows the first time around, and they're already having to renew them. Right? And it's in the context of this moment that we see God reveal himself to his people as Elkanah. The Lord is jealous. And, and every time that name Elkanah shows up in the Old Testament, it's always in the context of idolatry, right? Which is making something or someone else other than God the object of your worship, right? This is why in verse 12, God says, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles, okay? Asherah, for those of you who don't know, uh, was the goddess of fertility in the Canaanite region, okay? And, and so God is saying, look, I'm taking you to this promised land, and your life is going to be a lot more comfortable than it was in Egypt. Like, it's going to be a lot better, but don't let your guard down, because all these other gods are going to try to make treaties with you. They're going to try to cut deals with you, but don't fall for their traps. And this is so important for those of us living in L.A. in 2022, many of us living very comfortable, privileged lives, and God wants us to know these idols are standing right there, crouching in every corner, ready to snare us, ready to trap us. Right? And you and I may not worship Asherah, but we definitely worship at the altar of many other gods, don't we? The God of work, the God of significance and popularity, the God of romance. And we bring all of our tithes and offerings and we lay them down at these gods' feet. And we say, save us. Help me get the things that we want. We go to the God of work and we say, God, I'll give you my life. I'll give you all my time and energy. I'll give you all the precious time I have with my friends and family. I'll give you my mental and emotional health. Save me. We go to the God of romance. We say, I'll give you my body. I'll give you my self-worth. I'll put my hope in you. Save me. We go to the God of popularity and we say, I'm going to sacrifice all my friends who actually care about me for friends with clout. Save me. We do it all the time. We're worshiping all the time. And God says, break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. You shall have no other gods before me, for my name is Elkanah. 
I'm a jealous God. Now, God could have used any other descriptor here. He could have called himself a holy God. He could have called himself a devoted God, but he chooses a word that means jealous. It makes him sound obsessed. It makes him sound consumed by love, and we don't like this image of God. But let me pose something for us. What if God is obsessed? What if God is consumed by love? What if God doesn't want us to just know that he loves us in a general kind of way? What if God wants us to know that he is passionately in love with us? What if God wants us to know that he adores us, that he wants to be where we are all the time, that he can't get enough of us? Um, you know, uh, some of you in here know the story of how uh, Carol and I met. And, uh, you know, in case you don't know, she liked me first, okay? And um, <laughs> is she here? Okay, I'm scared. Um, we met in college. She was, a, she was 17, I was 20, okay? So she was a freshman, I was a senior. And um, I still remember meeting her. We met at church, and, you know, our college, we had a college ministry. College students would always hang out outside after service. So college students, if you're here, you could be sitting next to your future spouse, just saying. Okay, and uh, outside, uh, the seniors would always welcome the new freshman class. And I remember Carol was standing there with a friend. I walked up to her, introduced myself. That was it. Walked away. Fast forward eight years later, we're married. Okay, it's crazy how God works. Uh, we're married, and what, what's, what's even crazier is that the day after our wedding, um, one of our good mutual friends was at work, and she was showing her coworker like uh, pictures from our wedding. And her coworker was like, oh my goodness, wait, like, I know them. And the coworker was like, is that Carol Hong and Jason Min? And, and our friend was like, oh yeah, how do you know them? And, and she was like, oh my goodness, this is so crazy. I was the friend standing next to Carol when Jason first introduced himself to us, and I still remember that day we got right back into the church van, and she was sitting next to us, and we were all talking, and she said, I'm going to marry that guy. Um, not going to lie, when I heard this story, I was a little creeped out, okay? Um, you know, we were married and everything, but it's still a little creepy, okay? Um, but then it all made sense, okay? Because we didn't start dating until I was 23 and she was 20. So we didn't start dating for three years. And I was kind of like walking back those three years and, and Carol was relentless, okay? Um, like, uh, you know, th this is back in the time we had AOL Instant Messenger, okay? Um, you know, Gen Z, y'all talk about like sliding into each other's DMs. You don't know anything about AIM OA messages, okay? That's how like we flirted back in my day. And, um, you know, I, I still remember I put up an OA message and it was like feeling a little under the weather today, you know? And uh, 30 minutes later, uh, I open my door and there's a bottle of Tylenol there. And my, I'm, I go to my housemates and I'm like, who dropped this off? And they're like, who do you think? <laughs> right? Uh, I, I did my undergrad at Penn. Carol was at Villanova. The schools are like 40 minutes apart. But then I would go to like the Penn library to go study. I would walk in and she would be there. 
And she'd be like, oh, hey, Jason. Like, uh, and I was like, what are you doing here? And she's like, I don't know. I just felt like studying at Penn today, you know? I was like, okay. Um, please do not go out and do something creepy and say that, like, you heard this at church or this is how, like, the pastor and his wife got together, okay? All this to say, anybody who knows my wife knows that she's, like, a closet, helpless romantic. She just puts her heart on her sleeve. This is who she is. And, and we often don't like to think of God like that, right? Makes him look kind of foolish, right? Um, you know, we like to think of God's love as an agape love or a phileo love, right? Like a nurturing love that a parent would have for his, for his kid, right? Or, or a love between two friends, but we don't really like to think about God's love as the passionate kind of love that you might find in a romantic relationship. And this is why I believe there's such a strong idolatry of marriage in the church and in our culture. Because we've kind of convinced ourselves that, well, yes, it is enough that God loves us, but there is still this kind of love that we can't get in God. That we have to seek that in a human relationship. And I think the church perpetuates this myth. I think the culture perpetuates this myth by kind of convincing us that we're incomplete or we're not fully human unless we're in a romantic relationship, unless we have a significant other. And yet when you think about it, Jesus was the most fully human person who ever walked the earth. He did not lack anything, and yet he wasn't married. And I don't think it's because Jesus settled I think it's because Jesus just had a fuller, richer understanding of God's love. An understanding of God's love that came from talking to him, walking with him, spending intentional time with him. And I believe in that relationship, Jesus found the deep intimacy, vulnerability, and passion that we often think is only available to us in a romantic relationship. But now this still begs the question, why the word jealous? Isn't jealousy still, by definition, wanting something you don't have? I thought you just said that God didn't lack anything. Doesn't the fact that God is jealous mean that he needs our love or that he needs something from us? And we know God doesn't need anything from us. There is nothing you and I can offer to God that he doesn't already have in himself. God doesn't need our love because the Bible says God is love. And what this means is that when God says he's a jealous God, he's not desperate to get something from us. He's desperate to give something to us. Okay, let me say that again. When we say that God is a jealous God, we're not saying that God is desperate to get something from us. He's desperate to give something to us. He's desperate to give us all the love that he has in himself, and it kills God to know, to see us searching in vain for a love that is already ours. Put another way, God isn't jealous to possess something that's not his. God is jealous to protect something that is his. He's not jealous to possess something that's not his. He's jealous to protect something that already is his. And I think one of the greatest displays of God's jealousy can be found in the book of Hosea. It's a story many of you may be familiar with. 
Uh, if you want to read one of the most heart-wrenching books in the Bible, go read the book of Hosea. Okay? Uh, now, Hosea is a prophet, which means Hosea has been handpicked by God to be God's mouthpiece uh, to his people. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, you know that uh, they were on a different level. Okay? Because not only did they have to verbally deliver a lot of their messages, they actually had to embody them in crazy ways. Okay, the prophet Elijah had to live in a cave and eat uh, food that birds provided him, right? The prophet Ezekiel had to lay on his left side for 390 days to symbolize the 390 years that Israel sinned, okay? So talk about having to live out your sermons, okay? I don't know if I could do that. But Hosea, his assignment was particularly strange because God calls Hosea, and he says, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Come again. I want you to go marry a prostitute. Well, Hosea obeys, and he goes, finds a prostitute named Gomer, and he marries her. Okay, I don't know what's sadder, that she's a prostitute or that her name is Gomer. Okay, but I digress. Okay? So the two get married. Uh, the two have children, and there's some scholarly debate around whether or not uh, the two of the children are even his. And, and there's a good argument to be made that they're not his, because in Hosea chapter 2, it says, I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. It's a pretty damning statement. So here's Hosea, a man who's dedicated his entire life to serving the Lord, married to an adulterer, raising kids. He doesn't even know whether or not they're his. And to add insult to injury, God tells Hosea to name one of his kids unloved, and one of his other kids, not mine, or not my people. I mean, can you imagine, right? Like, hey, remind me, what was your name? Unloved. <laughs> I am so sorry. All right, so we get to Hosea chapter 3. Gomer is now left home with another man, leaving Hosea with his three kids. And God comes to Hosea, and he says, I want you to go find your wife, and I want you to marry her again. Like, if you're reading this, you're like, how much humiliation and shame can a person take? He says, I want you to go find your wife and marry her again. Can anyone love someone so deeply that they would be willing to subject themselves to such pain and heartache? Well, Hosea does. And so he goes out looking for his wife. You can assume he's in a part of town that uh, most prophets would not be caught dead in. And he finds himself in a slave market where women are being sold to the highest bidder. And you can just imagine the scene. Hosea pushing his way through a crowd full of rabid men, screaming and jeering. Hosea just straining to just catch a glimpse of someone who looks remotely like his wife. And then he sees her. And you can imagine that as he draws nearer to her, his eyes welling up with tears because there she is, his wife, chained to an auction block. Naked, completely disheveled, just a shell of herself. 
And with as loud a voice as he can muster, he says, I'll take her. Name your price. You can imagine Gomer probably looks up because she knows that voice. And she's probably thinking, there's no way it's him. After everything I've done, how could anyone want me? How could anyone love someone like me? And yet there he is, handing over 15 shekels of silver and all the barley he has. Why? All so that he can take his own wife home. What is this story showing us? Showing us the heart of God. The heart of a God who is relentless, who will stop at nothing to retrieve what is already his. This is the God we see in Exodus 34, a God who continues to pursue the ones he loves even when they turn their backs on him. If you're here today and you feel far from God, you've been away from the church for a while and you're giving church another chance, or you've been involved in some things you know you shouldn't be involved in, or you're carrying baggage that makes you feel unworthy to be loved, I just want to say this. There is nothing you can do to stop God from loving you. There is nothing you can do to make God stop loving you. You can curse God, you can run from Him, and there is nothing you can do to keep Him from loving you. You know why? Because you are the object of God's deepest obsession. He still wants to be where you are. He still wants your heart. He still wants to know you. He's the God who leads the 99 in the open field to go after the one. He's the God who scours every nook and cranny in the house to search for the one lost coin. He's the God who is willing to go to hell and back just to bring us home. Because jealousy makes us do some crazy things. If you want to know what happens after Exodus 34, I'll give you a summary of the entire Bible. It's the same story over and over and over again. It's human beings running from God, constantly breaking their covenant vows, and it's God continuing to chase after them. And here's the great news. No matter how far you run, you can't outrun the love of God. No matter how hard you try, you can't outrun the love of God. You know, there's a section right before this passage that we didn't read, but that's quoted a lot throughout Scripture. And it's in verses 6 and 7, and it says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And again, think about the context. We often see the God of the Old Testament as this violent, wrathful, vengeful God, and yet right when Israel has broken their covenant vows in the middle of the wedding ceremony, God says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is saying, your love is fickle. Your love is constantly changing, but my love is steadfast. My love is unconditional. My love is unfailing. But then he adds one more line after that that's really interesting. It says, 
Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's, it's a weird thing to, to read together, right? Because the two parts seem to contradict each other. On one hand, God is all forgiving. But on the other hand, he never leaves the guilty unpunished. Which one is it? Which God is it? There's a tension between God's mercy and justice. And I think as you think about it and as you reflect on it, you realize, wait, you need God to be both. You need both things. Because if God is only just, if God only gives people what they deserve, then what hope do you and I have? Because we know we're screwed up. We're jacked up. And if God is only just, we're screwed. But if God is only merciful, what are you going to do about all the evil in the world? Are you just going to sweep it under the rug? What are you going to do with all the systemic injustice and oppression that we see on a daily basis? You're just going to forget about it? Someone has to pay the bill. Someone has to pay the price. And the only way God can be both merciful and just is to do it himself. It's the only way. And that's exactly what he does. Except he doesn't pay for us with 15 shekels of silver and just some barley. He pays with his life. God is so obsessed with us that he leaves his heavenly throne. And Philippians 2 says he takes on the form of a slave being obedient to death even death on a cross. God goes to the most despicable, vile place on earth to look for us and to bring us home. And you can hear his voice through the crowd, I'll take her. Name your price. And the people around are saying, her? You sure about that? You know where she's been, right? You know what she's done. You know who she is, right? And he says, I know who she is. She's my wife. And I still love her. This is the jealous love of God. Jesus trades places with us on the selling block and says, you will not be exploited and used and enslaved anymore. And if that means I have to be stripped naked, humiliated, and nailed to a cross, then that's what I'll do. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jealousy makes us do some crazy things. This morning, I believe God is pleading with all of us to come back to him. He's saying, why are you giving yourself to these other masters who can't love you the way I love you? Come live with me and let me live with you. The power of the story in Exodus 34 and the story of Hosea is that we see just how deep God's jealousy is for us. It runs so deep that he's willing to commit to us after we've betrayed him. It's very easy to commit to someone before they betray you. It's a totally different thing to commit to them over and over again after they've betrayed you. 
and yet this is what God does. And the invitation is, if you feel far from God, recommit your life to him. Because there's no one who will love you like God loves you. We all have our demons. We all have ways that we've fallen short and we've missed the mark. We all have ways we've fallen short as, as sons and daughters, as husbands and wives, as parents, as friends. But Jesus is waiting with us, waiting for us with open arms. He says, I know everything you've done. And I know everything you will do. And yet I still love you. And I gave my life that you would know that no matter how hard you try, you can never outrun my love. This is the jealous love of Elkanah, our God. Let's pray. God, I suspect that uh, there are many of us in this room who feel um, extremely unseen, who feel lonely, who feel unloved. I'm sure that is only uh, made worse uh, by the season that we're in, the season of isolation, this culture inundated with social media and images of um, what seems like people who are in love with one another. And God, this morning I pray that you would remind us of your jealous love for us, of your all-consuming, passionate love for us that looks upon us with eyes of fire, that looks upon us with desire, that wants all of us, that wants us to experience the abundance of love that is in your being. Oh God, I pray that we would know, we would know that love, that we would stop chasing that love in other places, we would stop chasing things thinking that they will give us the love that our hearts so desire, but that we would know that we already have that love in you. Thank you for buying us back. Thank you for loving us in spite of who we are and what we've done. We thank you that though our love is fickle, your love is steadfast and unchanging. Help us, Lord, to recommit our lives to you knowing that yours is a true love. Yours is the only love that can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. We thank you for this word. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.